Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday afternoon, and um, always a busy week, and I hope to uh, do the podcast today. Um, I'm going to try to follow what I did last week because of the particular season that we're in. Somebody actually called my attention to it with an email, so I'm going to follow up over here because this is the anniversary of 1391, as I'll explain in a moment. Today's podcast is being sponsored by the Fragers, my good friends. Um, it's uh, Sephora Frager or uh, Sephora Shavalsky. This is, uh, we hope today that this podcast will be as a host for a foolish lemur for a father. My very good friend, Robin Moshe Shavalsky, needs a foolish lemur. Um, he's getting there near 100 years old. And um, we wanted to get to beyond that. Uh, and a very good friend of mine. In fact, um, let me make a Meshabek right now. Meshabek, I was in Ami Siakov, Moshe and Dabu Shlomo, Yvorka Rapes, or Moshe Ben Sara, but Moshe and Nachmas Palmdov, Skyzak, Kodesh Bokhim, Ola Rachmalov, Achlim, Lapoz, Lachziko, Lachioso, Yishlov, Fushlam, Shmaim, Ramachi, Rovja, Sagido, Sosha, Chais, Ravus, and Nefesh, Pusigub, Hashtab, Goliz, Mark, even in my rape. They should be for a fool. Um, and she, I said, send me something, you know, his father's birthday, whatever. And uh, it's uh, this week, it's a birthday. Now, uh, we're talking about someone born in the 1920s. And she sent me something very nice. Rabbi Shavalsky is, is old Baltimore. Not too many people from that era stay from, you know. Uh, and she says, my father had a bar mitzvah, a deal to go to Sachem Shul. This is downtown Baltimore now, Laura Park Heights. And Rabbi Friedland was the rabbi there, and the bar mitzvah was in 1937. That's just a few years ago. I'm sharing this because it's really wonderful, and it gives you an idea of what things were like in the old days. There were five or six other bar mitzvah boys. So they had, in those days, the shuls, they lived from bar mitzvahs, you understand? Otherwise, you didn't have so many people. And so they had five or six bar mitzvahs at one, one weekend. Uh, and... Uh, uh, my father remembers that one boy ca- came from rich family, so the sermon was all about that family. <laughs> nothing, nothing has changed, you know. Now, um, another bar mitzvah boy was singled out. On the other hand, of all these bar mitzvah boys, this is in the 30s. You know, day schools at that time, you know that. It was the TA was up to the fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade. My father was the only one who could lane the whole parsha, and so he did. And the other boys were very grateful. <laughs> and Tzipora uh, said, "We asked my father." Was it bad having to share bar mitzvah with other boys? No, it was a good thing because since there were so many kids, that means all the families contributed to the shul kiddush, so you could have herring. This was in depression. The thirties was depression. I don't know if you know this. The big depression was nineteen twenty nine. There was a second depression called the Roosevelt Depression in nineteen thirty seven. Look it up because of certain financial uh, policies. Uh, life was tough. You know, food was uh, scarce. My father was thrilled to link the parsha. Because then he became a Balkare. That's true. And he would lay in every Shabbos at various shuls. We're talking long ago. How many young people now? Today, there's a lot. How many people in the 1930s and 40s took the trouble to learn how to lay? You know how that works. You, you read your, your Haftorah, 
your five, six psukim, and Gamarnu, right? And Rashi, Rabbi Rudiman, because Rabbi Shavalsi is one of the early students of Near Israel, he says, hey, my father, Eastern Shore, to North Carolina, who knows where, and all over the place to beat about Baal and the Torah. This is the America of yesteryear. It used to have all over the South, all over the Midwest, and places like that in these states, lots and lots of these small Jewish communities. And especially Yom Tovim time, especially Yom Narayim, they would go to the yeshivas and say, I guess, can you send us a boy? Can you somebody who knows how to... Uh, they couldn't dive for the almond, you know? They didn't know how to be about, uh, about chakras, about Muslim, and they sure didn't know how to lane. So in those days, you know, lane, if you care to spend yant away from your family and from the yeshiva, you can make a few bucks. Money was scarce. Anyway, that's a wonderful person. And as I say, I hope we'll talk about today. Uh, and that marriage should be as list for a foolish lemma. Now let's get down to business. Uh, I Somebody sent me um, an email the other day. Since last week, I happened to pick up on Chav Sivan. And then the other events of the week, instead of talking about a person. So he said, you know, this week is Rosh Chodesh. Thomas, I forgot about myself. I'll be honest with you. And he says, it's the anniversary of Kufnanov, of the famous, it's another bad thing in Jewish history. I'm just going to acquaint you with a classic source today. Um, the riots of 1391 that broke out in Spain. Uh, we're talking about Spain in the Middle Ages, obviously. Uh, there were two big kingdoms, uh, Castile and Aragon, as I've mentioned many times before. You should look go online and just Google Castile and Aragon. They sound like they sound. And you'll see that the middle part of Spain was called the Kingdom of Castile. And on the right side, the part facing Israel, Catalonia, as they call it today, was called the Kingdom of Aragon. The third big kingdom was Portugal. Uh, later in history, Aragon and Castile combined to form a country called Spain, but not Portugal. That's why in that part of the world, the Iberian Peninsula, you have two countries, A and B, Spain and Portugal. Now, um, the Jews were in all these places. There was even a little one besides that. Jews were all all these places. Not only that, I was the, by far the largest Jewish community was in Spain. Much bigger, much, much bigger than Ashkenaz and these other places. <laughs> 10 times as big. More than 20 times as big. You have no idea. For some reason, the Jews really settled in Spain all over the place. And um, for a while, it was good. It reminds me of America. You know, sooner or later, it's not good. Living in Gullis, I hate to say it, living in Gullis, you simply have to understand you're living always on a volcano. Sometimes you can fool yourself. Since the volcano hasn't burped for a while, so you think it's not going to burp. But it's the nature of volcanoes that they burp every once in a while. And out comes the lava. You know that. Uh, it can go for a long time without burping. But to think that something's not going to burp is just self-delusional. So here you are in a Catholic country, uh, Spain, Castile and Aragon. And, uh, I mean, the Jews are not popular. The Jews, as always, uh, got along by finding out who are the important people and kissing up to them. That's what they do now. You have no choice. You have to find out who's in the, uh, in the uh, what do you call it? The police and the mayor and then that sort of thing. All right, somebody, one second. No, I just had to do a Shiloh. Anyway, um, that's how it goes in this business. Uh, as I was saying, the Jews lived on this volcano. They tried to get along with the people at the top. But you see, here's the thing. Are you only in good terms with the people at the top? 
but the people in the street hate you, that's Mama Shabokano. The best thing is when the person in the street doesn't hate you. Either they know, know you're there, that's also good, or, you know, you're you're not hated for whatever reason or another. As you and I know, they get, a lot of times they cause people to hate them themselves. Um, and call Yisrael Reim Zelzeh, I mean that unfortunately in a bad way. So if some Jew is, is ostentatious, walks around and offends others, I'm going to take it on the kiss because I'm wearing a yarmulke. That's how it goes. <clears throat> so in Spain, without spending the whole lecture, suffice it to say, and by the time you get to the 14th century, the Jews were pretty unpopular in the street. Um, they were tight with the richie riches. They were tight with the kings and with the nobles and with the church. So it seems to be, or at least let me rephrase that, the kings, the nobles, and the church hierarchy, the bishops, the cardinals, and that sort of thing. Because they made it their business to be. They gave presents, v'dayelah hakim b'remiza. And this is how it goes. So the Jews played a very important part in aspects, certain aspects of the economy, especially the revenues to the king and the revenues to the nobles. You know, um, but at the Hamunam level, Catholic Church was already speaking against them for perfectly understandable reasons for at least 100 years, more than 100 years. Because from the Catholic perspective, she shouldn't be Jewish anymore. Now, um, therefore, by the time you get to... So it's, it's a question of your attitude. If you want to live in a country long term, you, you kind of develop uh, something of a self-delusional uh, shell, you know, like a hardcore shell or something, in which you say the regular hamonam doesn't count anyway. Uh, the people in charge of the guns and the things, they're the ones that count. I get that, but the problem is if there's ever a breakdown in the system and any kind of chaos ensues, uh, then the Jews will take it in the kisser. Uh, this is exactly why they say in the Perkyovas, have Ms. Paul Basham Shal Malchus, listen closely. If people don't have moro, more means they're afraid, afraid to break the law. Every once in a while, things happen, they're not afraid to break the law. That's not good for Jews. Regardless of what the issue is. I'll just give you an example. You had all these black riots last year with the Black Lives Matter. You know, look what they burned down, destroyed here and there. Nothing happened to them. It's not good for Yidden. Because the very idea that you can get away with breaking the law... Thus, Elaine is bad news for a minority. You see? Because you're relying on a thin line of law enforcement, and when the Hamonam is against you, the law enforcement can't handle it, can't tackle it. This is the great danger today of the Internet, frankly. You know, these stupid idiot Jews who own the Internet are making it free. Anybody can say whatever anti-Semitic stuff they want in it. And history will record that Jews shot themselves in the foot. You know what I'm saying? Trump, they'll pull it off. But the Nazis, they don't kick off. So, it's a, you know, it's, it's very bad. In those days, by the time you get to the 14th century, as I said before, the public hates the Jews. It's just Muramalchus that's that's restraining them. You get it? And any time a Jew had an issue with somebody who's not Jewish, they would always go to the king or the courts and that sort of thing. And, you know, if they were in the right, they would get redress of grievances. Uh, but the loser will be very angry at them. Okay, that's the basic situation. Now, in Spain, in Castile, in the middle of the 1300s, uh, the law and order broke down. Why? It was a civil war between two brothers. 
uh, Pedro and, and Enrico, Peter and Henry. If you want to, each guy was a jerk. One was called Pedro the Cruel, and Henry of Trastamara was Henry the Bastard. Now they didn't call him a bastard because he was a bad guy, although he was. He was a bastard. He was illegitimate. You understand? He's the only son of the previous king. So Pedro was the king, and the other guy wants to knock him out. And Pedro was incredibly cruel. And at least he seems to be. Anyway, it's hard to tell when you get these medieval things because you're always relying on one or two chronicles. And, you know, it depends on the prejudices of the chronicle guy. Believe it or not, there was a guy, Pedro de Ayala, who wrote all about this, these brothers. So you're either relying on him or you're not. But, um, but uh, let's put it this way. A civil war broke out. Pedro kind of, for various reasons, made himself unpopular. Uh, Henry of Trastamara came in to knock him out with an army. The army included a lot of mercenaries, especially French. French were the number one anti-Semites of the Middle Ages. I repeat, the French were the number one anti-Semites in the Middle Ages. Here's a guy coming with French mercenaries uh, of the worst kind, Bertrand du Jasselin, famous in France. And you have a civil war. Now, it's a stupid civil war. The question is who should be king, that's all. No, it's not like interests are involved. It's personal. Now, Pedro was regarded as favoring the Jews. So Henry hates the Jews. And in the course of this war, you know, if A captured a town, then B captured a town, you know, if the guy, if, if the team of the one who doesn't like the Jews catches a town, they'll kill everybody or do terrible things to the Jews. If you're interested in this subject, used to be a guy, Henry Charles Lee, back in the 1800s. He wasn't an academic, but he was a brilliant historian. He wrote the History of the Inquisition. He has these wonderful articles from yesterday. They're still not out of date, in my opinion, uh, on all this business. And so, here, uh, just to give you an example, I'll read you a short piece. Pedro the Cruel was, this is from Lee. Pedro the Cruel was a friend of the Jews. It's a sign of their growing unpopularity that his rebellious bastard brother, Henry of Trastamara, found his account in persecuting them, meaning... Because you're back, because you back the Jews and the Jews back you, I'm gonna get him. When Henry and his brother entered Toledo to liberate their mother, uh, they attacked the Jewish quarter and killed 1,200, killed all the 1,200 inhabitants without sparing age or sex. They also besieged the principal Jewish neighborhood, which was defended by Pedro's guys, until his arrival as reinforcements caused the assailants to withdraw. In other words, law and order broke down, and so basically you have two mafias. And you hope that the mafia that's on your side, and they're only on your side because you're of service to them, will prevent you from being hurt by the mafia on the other side. But not really, you know what I mean? And again, five years later in 1360, Henry invaded Castile with the aid of so-and-so, and Ayala, who's the chronicler, says uh, that he ordered a massacre to Jews in order to gain popularity, right? And, and then he brought the French in, so all I'm telling you is to live in the 1350s, 60s was a terrible time. And I think, if I remember correctly, 30-some thousand Jews, that's a lot, were killed. Plus, the other communities have to pay zillions. They went broke to pay off, you know, um, to prevent massacres and things like this. And so the result was that an example was given to the Hamonam of going around and committing massacres of Jews. You get it? And Dos Alain is doing terrible. As I said before, if you're a minority, 
You you need a situation in which, as far as law and order is concerned, you need a police state. Now, I didn't say you need a non-democratic state, but you have to have a state in which it's a, a severe a power of police, of law and order. You understand? Comes to mind, I'm just thinking of, let's say, Singapore or something like that, where I don't think the government's oppressive, but at least what I'm told is a very strong police presence. That's good for the minorities. You get it? I know they beat you up if you drop a, a chewing gum on the street. That's actually good for the Jews. You follow? Now, here you are in the 1350s and 60s. And by the way, Henry the Bastard won. He killed Pedro. Then he took over. Then the Jews were really up the creek, except that he, it turned out now that he's the king, he needs their financial help. And so he persecuted him, but he also gave special privileges to individual Jews. It was a very confused situation. All of which means that um, the spell of law and order had been broken. Now, a little after this, um, here, and here comes all the trouble. A certain priest, uh, Ferran Martinez, um, declared war on the Jews. There's one guy, he, he came to, this became obsession with him. There's a lot to do in Christianity other than take on the Jews. No, this was his Ikerzach. And he was a Hashua guy, unfortunately. He was the archdeacon in Echicha. Maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. I'm not Castilian. Echicha. Which is near, you know, it's, it's, I know exactly where it is. It's, uh, it's in southern Spain between Seville and Cordoba, if that means anything. It's a very beautiful area. I was in Seville, I was in Cordoba, a very pretty area. There were lots of Jews living in these places. And uh, he made his business to go against the Jews. And he started saying like this, strictly speaking, really, 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 according to Catholic jo the law, the Jews are not really allowed ever to build a shul. If you go back to the Roman emperors who converted to Christianity, like Theodosius and all this, in the 400s, you know what I mean? Way back when, in the 300s, when the Roman Empire was still around, they poskined the Roman emperors that whatever shul is standing has to be left alone. You can't destroy it. And if you do, you have to pay, um, you know, re or recompense. But the Jews can't start any new shuls. Now, this was one of a million laws that were on the books, but wasn't really honored so much. Lemaiso, when Jews want to build a shul, they did. Who remembers a law from the three or four hundreds when it's a thousand years later? Because I'm talking about the thirteen hundreds. <laughs> but the answer is those that care, care. And it is on the books. And he started saying, listen, all the synagogues have to be uh, given to the Christians or destroyed. And every synagogue is, a, is headquarters of Satan. And he made speeches like this and so on and so forth. That the Jews complained. Mamish the same way, you see, the ADL complains. Oh, you said something anti-Semitic in the press or in the internet and so on and so forth. Well, this guy didn't give a darn. And they even got the king to intervene, uh, Henry, of all people. And then his successor, who I think was John, John the First. These things matter. And they, they summoned him, and uh, they even got the uh, church to intervene. And each time the guy just wouldn't listen. So the problem is, at the end of the day, in the Middle Ages, they're not really going to punish a priest, not really, for being too anti-Jewish. You get it? It's like the college of shame. And this guy knew it. And so he went on for 10 years from 1378 to 1388, just hetzing on all the time. 
and he was what we call like a Billy Sunday, like a Father Cogler. He got a big. He was a good speaker, unfortunately. And it's poisoning the atmosphere. This is exactly what's happening in the U.S. as far as the Arab-Israeli dispute is concerned. You know it, and I know it, and in other countries as well. They're poisoning the atmosphere by, you know, by constantly heating on these things. And even if people complain, they say, "Oh, you shouldn't do it." The guy who's doing the poisoning is the winner, because the hamonam, you know, you're left with that impression. It's a certain art of propaganda. It's a certain art of propaganda. And the Jews were helpless. You know, the only thing the Jews knew how to do in the old days was bribe somebody, whatever, to shut them up. But this guy wouldn't do that. And so what do you happen? So it's getting worse and worse. Uh, there are a lot of incidents. I just don't want to give you the whole business. Now, uh, that's 1388. Now comes 1390, 1391. The king died from a stupid accident. It's a He fell off a horse. So he left an 11-year-old son as next king. 11-year-old is too young. And so the queen takes over, and she and a bunch of regents are running the country. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. The Jews are complaining. In January of 1391, you know, he made a speech again, burned down the show, whatever, and the regency council, they said, you better shut up or you'll get in trouble. He said, I don't care what you say. You know, I'm doing the right thing. You're doing the wrong thing. So he had a chutzpah in the raw. And they did not punish him. You see, they did not punish him. As the result was, Hutcherizu, he saw, can get away with literally anything. And uh, then came Rosh Chodesh Thomas, which is this week, in June 6th, actually, uh, which is today's English date, or June 9th, I forget. Literally, almost the same day, calendar day. And he gave a big speech in the uh, cathedral in, in Seville, and he said, let's go and, and get the Jews. And they all ran out and destroyed the Jewish community of Seville. You know what I'm saying? They ransacked the Jewish quarter. They killed a bunch of people. They took everything as a rape, as this, that, and the other. And a ton of them converted because people were scared out of their minds. The mob violence is a mob violence. You can't judge anybody from a distance. It looked very scary. Um, it's like the Nazis are coming. But the difference is the Nazis were going to kill the Jews no matter what. Here, if you convert, you don't get killed. <laughs> so it's too tempting not to do a Kiddush Hashem. Because strictly speaking, this is the case where you call your Hargwal Yabar. It's a Shemad. You understand? Strictly speaking, it's a Shemad. In the Crusades, in 1096, that's what the Jewish communities, many of them did. They committed suicide, as you know. Here, no, nothing like that happened. Well, that's not true. Some did. But many, many did not. And... The trouble is that there was no punishment of the perpetrators. So it immediately spread like wildfire to another town and then to another town. So starting in Rosh Chodesh Thomas, and then a week later and a few days later, a few days later, a few days later, over the next several months, it just spontaneously broke out. All these pogroms in which the Christians would run to the Jewish neighborhoods, either kill them all or force them all to convert or this or that and the other. I'll read, there's a famous letter just like I wanted the last time to acquaint you with the classics, sometimes the sad classics, of Jewish historiography. So, let me just say that um, it spread all over Castile, over central Spain, and there are many carbonases you'll see, and then it crossed the border into Aragon, which was the kingdom next door. Now, hearing the king of Aragon had a king, and he disapproved strongly, and he said, you better not do it. doesn't matter. 
The mob just went into a frenzy and he did it. See, call the bluff. Call the bluff. He said, oh, if you do this, I'll punish you. Yeah? What if the whole city, like happened in Valencia, there was a a, a preacher there, Vincent Vicente Ferrer, who's a saint in the Catholic Church, and he hit everybody up to go and wipe out the Jewish community there or force them to convert. Now that they did it, what are you going to do? The only thing you can do is the king should get the money of the dead Jews. I don't even know if he got that. You, you, you see what I'm saying? So it spread all the arrogant as well. And the Jews were going crazy, making their pants because it was a terror, ter, 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 terroristic, it was a terror to live through. It was like fulfillment of what they have in the Tokoko that you only, you know, you run like a driven leaf, you know, cola and off. But Boker, Yomar, meeting meeting Boker. It's just a terror. Now, um, the king of Aragon himself was in this, uh, had his headquarters in Saragossa. Uh, he said nobody should make any rides, but they were doing it all over the place. At least in the area of Saragossa, he was able to hold law and order in that province. So it was one area or two in Spain, in Aragon, in the northern Aragon, where the riots did not hit. But they hit 90%, if not more, of all the communities of Spain, and left a Chorban and a half. Mamash, a Chorban and a half. There is a famous um, uh, letter. The, uh, let me say this. The big Jewish leader, if I can use that term, during this time in Aragon was Chazde Kreskes, who later became famous because of his uh, philosophy book, the Or Hashem, which is a very dense, very difficult, very difficult book. And um, he was a, for those of you in the Shiva world, he's the Rabbi Namukha Yosef. That means anything, right? Talmud Laran. And he was from the Jewish elites of the best sense. In Spain, you had the Jewish upper classes, I mean the Richie Riches. But as is always the case, the Richie Riches fall into two classes, two types, A and B. The first type is okay. The second type is not. The first type is is rich, but they're patrons of Torah. They live a firm life. Try to set a good example. On the contrary, it could be a Kiddush Hashem because the guy's loaded and lives the right way. That's a plus. That's a Kiddush Hashem. But very often, it's the opposite. The richy riches are the ones they're not learned. They're bossy. They they uh, they're flaunted. Uh, they cause trouble for the other Jews. They're uncouth, and also they're not from where they're very college of a column. And he had plenty of that in Spain, unfortunately. Plenty. Okay? Chazi Kress is, is really an outstanding example of the first class. Like the Rasha was that type. They came from wealthy background, but they would combine, I'll use the expression, Torah Gedul V'mokamechon. You understand? But very classy. If, you, if you've studied the biography of Chazi Kreskes, came from the uh, elite circles, in the best sense of the word. There were a lot of wealthy elites that acted terrible, but he was one of the good ones. And he was uh, a friend of the queen and the king of Aragon, Queen Yolanda. And um, he was able, as you'll see in a minute, to use his connections and his wealth to get the Jews in his area where he was, in Saragossa, in northeastern uh, Spain, uh, protected, but just barely. And he is a Spanish Jew, and so he's looking at the Corbin's happening to him like a tochacha come true. And it's a famous letter that he wrote, and that's what I'm sharing with you now, to the Jews in Avignon in, in, in southern uh, France. Um, 
complaining, you know, telling them about the terrible thing that just happened. And here's how the letter goes. This is Kazi Crassus writing to the Jews in southern France. He says, If I will tell you the terrible things that just hit us, you're going to a shock. I'll give you the short version. I'll give you the table loaded with, uh, um, you know, what is it, uh, you know, wormwood and gall uh, in Bixar. I'll tell you what really happened. So you'll be able to taste the bitterness. Notice you'll have an empathy. And give you a drink of the bitter wine that we're drinking here in Spain. Because I figure, since I think you basically know what happened, but not, but not, you know, in in a clear outline. I'll give it to you the short version, without giving you barichas. And here we go. This is Chazdei Kreskis writing to the Jews elsewhere. Yom Rosh Chodesh Tammuz Kufnanal. That's this week. Rosh Chodesh, as you know, is this Thursday. So, once upon a time, long ago, I'm sorry to say, it's tw- this is 2021, so we're talking, what, 700 years uh, later. Yom Rosh Chodesh Tammuz Kufnanal, Hamar v'hanimar, this terrible day, Dar Hashem Kashta Sayoyev Al-Kihil Sevilya. He's writing very from, you know. He said, the good Lord launched his arrows, the arrows of the enemy, against the community in Seville, which was one of the most important communities in Spain. And that's where I told you, that's where this Mamzer, what's the name, uh, Ferranda Martinez, got everybody heated up and started the first example of killing the Jews, taking their money, rape, pillage, arson, and getting away with it. That's the key point, getting away with it. No consequences. Uh so again, Yom Hamar Hanimrazeh, Dar Hashem Kashta Zoyev, Al Kihila Sevilia Rabasi Yom, the great Jewish community of Seville, Shahayabokum of Shisha, Shiba Allah from Balabatim. It's a community of seven, six or seven thousand families. Balabatim is a guy with his family. So I don't know if that's a real number or not. It's hard to tell in Spain when they tell these numbers. A lot of times they exaggerate. But I want to be honest with you. I did a little bit of checking on. When I regard as reliable historians, it seems the mamash was thousands. Uh, it, it, it's quite a story. So a community of, let's say, 6,000 families is what? Uh, 20,000, 30,000 people. That's a, that's a huge number. Anyway, they burned the uh, gates of the ghetto. Now, this is, a, this is not a ghetto in the sense you can't... It's a ghetto, like a gated community, uh, with fire, and killed a lot of people. But the truth is, most of the Jews there just converted. Hamir, they became Mumrim. But the rioters uh, took a number of Jews, I don't know how many, as slaves. Uh, so as they came in, they killed the men and the women. I said it wrong. They came in and killed the men. And the women and children, they carried off and sold to Arabs as slaves. You see? So here you are, uh, you know, having a good old time. And it's the summer. And all of a sudden, a riot comes in. And next thing you know, they killed everybody. And the women and children are sold off to slavery to the Muslims, which was in Granada. 
and all of a sudden you come into a Jewish neighborhood which was thriving and bustling and it's empty, it's a silent, right? Like happened, let's say, by Hitler's time. There was a whole kill and then all of a sudden when the Nazis take them all off in trains, all of a sudden it's silent. He said, what can I tell you? Many did the right thing in the religious sense that they died al-Kiddush Hashem, and many did not. Chililu bris Kodesh. They violated the, the bris Kodesh, which means they converted to Christian, because they were scared. Misham yotza ha'esh, and then the fire spread, meaning the pogroms, and hit Yer Kadosh Kilis Cordoba, which is uh, not too far away from Spain. Very important, beautiful communities. Gamsham he'imir rabim batil chorba. And they're also a lot converted, and the whole thing was a churban. Uh It became a, a churba, you know, an empty place. What about Shavasa Batamas, which by us is anyway a, a fast day? That year also was a bad, because that was Toledo. Toledo was the biggest yeshiva, okay? Uh, not too long before was the rush, the rabbi in Toledo, and in the time we're talking about the 1390s, his grandchildren were the leaders of the community, and they were killed. Which means, you know, he's using biblical imagery, but you understand what it means. So the riot spread to Toledo, capital city of Castile, and they killed Coin Venobi, all the rabbis. Shama Hashem the rabbonim died al Hashem, they would not convert. Not surprising, because they were the grandchildren of, of, of the rush. When the other and many in the community converted. So you see, because they couldn't, they couldn't take it. So you see the pattern that hits everywhere, which is some die al Hashem, and others choose not to. They choose to convert. And Chazda Kresas continues. For these three communities itself, I don't know what even say American example, you know, but um, Seville, Cordoba, Toledo, three big Chasho communities, Rogzarts, Milvakil, Sacheris, Svivasayim, Bob, Mispark, Moshimir, and if you count the small little hick towns, everyone which had a Jewish Kehillah, you know, like used to be in America. All these communities in Spain, towns you never heard of, had Jewish communities, about 70 of them. So the entire region, we call Andalusia, or central southern uh, Spain, I guess, was hit with this junk. Okay, and again, it was like spontaneous. You see, Shimir v'cholzos anachnu Paul majber, and we here, where I'm living in the other part of Spain, in um, in Saragossa, we were like on the birthing stool. And others, we were terrified. which is a dublon tundra. First of all, we had to set up a shomrim. So we had to be day and night on the Mishmar. And second of all, it means they davened. You understand? They davened. Um, maybe they even learned. Mishmar could mean either one. Not too long later, when it hit um, just for Tisha B'av. So from Shavasar Thomas, when it hit uh, Toledo till uh, another three weeks or so, a little bit less, that means it takes time for news to travel. And they say they got on ships. Others, and you can just imagine the truck drivers say, you know what happened where I came from? They killed all the Jews. And we got away with it. 
pass the word. So then it hits Aragon. Then it hit Valencia, which is in the, already in Aragon, in the, on the Mediterranean. Here there was a thousand families. Of the thousand families, 250 did Kiddush Hashem, died. And the others tried to run away. But only a few were able to get away. And the great majority of the community converted. And it's even not exactly true. The Jewish community went out beforehand to convert. This is where the Rivosh was, the rabbi. Okay? And it was so terrible, it's even the Rivosh converted, according to some uh, historical sources. Uh, you know, until he could run away, you know, until he could get out of there. And they, they, there's all this business, you know, they put these guys in um, stadiums and they were going to torture them and all this kind of, It was just terrible. So, notice you see the spread from, let's see, we say it starts in uh, Chicago, ends up in this place and this place and that place. You know, it's just spread. It's like a cancer. Misham Poshat Hanega Bekils Mallorca from Valencia, which is on the Mediterranean. People brought news to the Spanish islands off of Spain, what they call the Balearic Islands, which are now big tourist areas. And they go to Mallorca, Hadina, the Chofiyam Mishkan, which is an island. Yom so you're already seeing the pattern. It starts in Rishchodesh Thomas. Um, by by Shivasa, but Thomas has already hit the, the three big cities. Then by Of, it's already spreading to uh, Aragon. And by El, you know, a little bit later, it's crossing the water into the islands off of Spain. That's where the Tashbits was. You know, from El, the guys showed up and they started forcing people to convert. They robbed everybody, they sacked it. They left it, this is a bitter uh, uh, pun, they left it like a fishing net that left no fish uncaught, which means no Jews were able to escape the Gezera. And if you want to know, he says 300 wouldn't convert and they died on Hashem. 800 ran away and hid in some kind of a castle of the king, because I told you before, in Aragon, the king tried to protect the Jews, not with too much success, but if you went to a royal castle, then maybe, you know, you could get some protection. But everybody else in the community, Hemiru, they all converted. I mentioned this the other day, um, they used to have, in Israel, years ago, in the 70s, I think, um, I saw it on, on the YouTube uh, this is your life. You know, like a TV show in Israel. This is your life. And they would call prominent personalities. Oh, I gotta tell you, I found it. They had Rabbi Gorin. I know, that was interesting to me. And uh, from a historical perspective. And one of them was Yitzhak Navon. And he was the president of Israel. Before that, he was in the Labor Party. He was actually Ben-Gurion's secretary. Yitzhak Navon is a Sephardi, the real thing, the real Sephardi. He comes from this background. And uh, I don't know, he was like the traditional type, you know, as far as I can see, even though he was in the Mapai party. And, um, you know, they do like, this is your life. So people say, hello, you remember me? So who's that? Oh, I, I can recognize the voice. So one of the people on there was from Balearic Islands, from Mallorca. And uh, Yitzhak Navon, who was a very educated guy, when he and his wife visited Mallorca, 
uh, long before they found all this Jewish community, meaning there are still Moranos there of some sort or another. Everybody knows they're from Jewish background. And this guy was talking about, you know, his shaykhs with uh, Yitzhak Nevan. Now here they are hundreds and hundreds of years later, since 1391. I think they're called Chuetas or something like that. And um, they still lead a double life. I mean, I don't know if they know the Jewish exactly. They know they're Jewish. But if you grew up generation after generation, also being Catholics, so you're all submission to your identity. And this guy, Yitzhak Nevan, was trying to sort it out. But here we are, the letter of Chasdei Kreskes, when the whole junk happened in 1391, that terrible year. As he says over here, um, most of them converted. Yom Shabbos Achrov, so a week after Rosh Chodesh Elul, Ne'er Migdosho, Bechil Nezer Teroso, Kielos Barcelona. Then came like the base of Migdosh, because Barcelona was the biggest Jewish community. That's where the Rajva had been. I think the Ritva also. Uh, Chazai Kreskes was there for a while. Very important Jewish community. Asher Havka Bayamaho, the city was breached on the 7th of Elul. In each case, they always talk about 250 frummies who died rather than convert. And the rest of the Jewish community, which must have been terrified out of their mind. They ran to the citadel, to the royal castle, which the king maintained there to, to be saved. Well, the Jews ran and lucky to save their skin on their backs. The mob ran and sacked the Jewish community. You understand? In other words, when you, everybody runs away from their house, so all those goodies are there, you can you can picture it. You understand? Uh, and burn some of the houses down just to be mobsers. And Chazde Kreskis, who is friends with the king of Aragon, he just says, you know, Yad Manigamadina, it wasn't the governor's fault. Right? It wasn't the governor's fault. The governor of uh, Barcelona was the king's brother, actually. Oh no, the governor tried to save the Jews. And the governor actually provided the Jews who ran there scared of their mind with food. And he tried to punish the rioters, the pogromists. As I come from Dalasam, but the mob went crazy. Bahamun Rav Amadina, and the mob threatened the elites, the Geisha elites, which means they say you better not protect these Jews, or we'll, we'll go against you. But Yilchamov Yehudim Asher BeMigdal in Kashtos of Blisteros, and they besieged the royal castle, the part where the Jews were, and they brought in cannonballs, or in those days, Kishasos of Blisteros. Um, you know, uh, crossbows and uh, and uh, catapults. And they broke in and killed the Jews there. Rabin Kishu Hashem. Again, many of the Jews in Barcelona. Kiddush Hashem, died of Kiddush Hashem. And Chazi Christa says, my son was one of them. He was engaged to be married. Chazi Christa had an only son. Said Tommy Melisi Lola. And they offer him as a carbonola. Now, this wasn't part of the plan, but that's what happened. And Chazay Kresta says, I'm making Tzedekadin. Meaning, if Hashem wanted to happen, then it was, obviously it was the right thing to happen. I can only find the Chama. He was a noble person. A noble person. He said, I can only find the Chama in my son's death. The Tov Chalko was good Chalik. Meaning, now. He's in Ganadin, and he 
the beauty of his fate. No, like I said before, he's in heaven. You know, he's not suffering now. He's in, he's in a better place. There are plenty in Barcelona, he tells us, that did like the Crusades. Now, here's a rare case. They shechted themselves. So some did like the Jews did in, in, in 1096. And some, not into full hands of the Christians and be converted, jumped, committed suicide by jumping off the, the roof of the castle, of the Migdal. And of course, they died on the way. He's describing like the Sir Lazozo. You know, as they jumped off, they banged against the wall on the way down and, and ripped to shreds. They had a horrible death. The kids And some didn't do that. They went out in the street, but they simply said, we're not converting, and they were killed. But everybody else converted. Very few were able to successfully hide by the Saganim, by the nobles, by the royal officials. Nar even a little kid could count it. No, it was less than ten. You know, something like that. This, those who were able to escape this way were from the elite. There's not a single Jew. The city is Yudenran. There's not a single Jew in Barcelona, meaning there's not a single unconverted Jew. His expression is, Barcelona, Ish B'Shem Yisrael Yichuna. Nobody calls himself a Jew. So we're having here, every. Uh, the reason I'm sharing this with you is everybody's more or less familiar with the Cossack massacres. And it reads the same way. There's a whole book called Yubay Mitzvah. Here's just a letter. And he doesn't go into so many details, but he's a good writer. And you begin to get the idea. You see over here from just this little bit that I'm reading you, that spread like a wildfire across Spain. It was just terrible, right? Beir Gironda, north of Barcelona, is the famous city of Girona, which is where the Ramban is from, and so many others. It was like a big Jewish headquarters, um, a big Malcolm Torah. There you could find Torah and Anova, and humility. At least the rabbis didn't convert. They Kedeshem Lohimirba Kimwatim. Very few converted. There in Girona, most of the community was able to escape by hiding in, in the homes of rich citizens or in the royal castle. Self Tobar, Pamalcus Valencia, the whole territory of Valencia, which is the southern half of uh, of the kingdom, the southern half of Aragon. Lonisha Yehudi, Zulus Mokamecha, Hanikra Morviedo. So basically, it's like saying in the whole state, there's no Jewish communities left, except in one place, in Morviedo. All the others, kill after kill after kill, are gone. Either they're dead, or um, or they converted. Either that's that's the reality of it. Bemachos uh, Catalonia, which is the northern part of Aragon, that's where he lived, Chazay Cresses. The only safe place... I'm sorry, that's the middle of the kingdom. Catalonia, middle of the kingdom. In the south, there's zero. In the middle, there's a few in the Arihasconim, Apachos, in the territories controlled by the royal officials and the nobles. So here and there, they were able to protect the Jews 
from being killed or converted. There's only a few exceptions to this. Uh, now, as for me, myself, I'm in the northern part of the kingdom, what he calls Aragon. The whole kingdom is Aragon, but specifically the northern part. Thank God we've had no trouble. There are no breaches, no crimes. Thank God that we're the survivors. But we're not survivors because they love us. We had to do a lot of lobby. And we had to pay a lot of good money. A good non-Jewish ruler is someone who will be good to the Jews after the Jews paid them off. It's, it's not heard of that they would be good without being paid. They're a tzaddik if, they, if after being paid, they will do it, you know. All we have left is the skin on our backs. Our wealth, in other words, we've had to spend on obtaining security. And we're full depression. Therefore, we're turning to our Father in Heaven. I am... You know, he's quoting uh, Prophet Jeremiah. Chazer Kreskes, etc., etc., etc. This letter is written, Yom Esrim L'Chodesh Mar You know, the following Cheshvan. So what are we left with? A terrible Tammuz, a terrible Av, and a terrible El. Yeah, that's what it is. For those three months, starting, you know, was this week. Uh, there was a time when they, a lot of Slichas were composed on this, and Sephardic communities long ago used to have special, you know, prayers and that sort of thing on that day. I'm not a Sephardi. As far as I'm aware, this is not practiced. Um, part of the reason I suspect is because later on came 1492, and that was even worse. But the events I just described launched a century-long problem because you ended up with an unplanned mass conversion that hadn't been foreseen. It's not like it was centri- centrally directed. The king was not behind it. The official Catholic Church was not behind it. The police and the others were not behind it. It just happened. And um, it was unstoppable. Now, wait a minute. It's not like the three months were over and then it was done. The letter I just read you was re- written after three months. But in reality, I'm sorry to say, the original guy, Fran Martinez, he did his... Sorry, he can burn in hell. But this other guy, Vincente Ferrer, he said, you know, look, we're on a roll. And he was a great speaker, and he went on a speaking tour of all Spain, over, up, and around, and through, and made these speeches everywhere, walking in the synagogues with a with a Torah, with a Chumash, and a cross. And he said, you all better convert now or else. And people were so terrified, he would be followed by a mob. Then in one community after another after another, over the course of the next 10 years or so, more. He didn't stop. And he went after one community, after another community, until gigantic numbers of people uh, converted. Uh, because they had him terrified. And he, that only encouraged him. And the result is, he had um, a terrible blow to the Jews in Spain. Now I'll tell you again, I've seen all kinds of numbers, but I'm holding here... Um, 
book about Jose Crescas from um, Hebrew University, from Shazar, uh, by Professor Harvey, who I know. And he knows his stuff. Uh, Warren Zeb Hardy, he's the expert, the academic. I mean, he really does know his stuff on this. And he says, um, there was, a, where is it? Alpha Yehuda Nirzchah Kiddush Hashem. In his biography of Crescas, he says, the thousands of Jews were killed. And 150,000 Jews converted. 150,000, that's a gigantic number. I don't think there were 50,000 Jews in the whole Ashkenaz. You get it? There were probably 10,000 Jews or less in the whole Italy. You have to understand, the, the numbers here are crazy. And I'll repeat, if Professor Harvey says it, then it's probably true. At least according to the best estimates that we can have. You know, you never have exact figures. And they used to write, the Catholic Church wrote about big figures and all the rest of it. Uh, millions. But 150,000 in the 1300s is humongous. It's like saying, uh, I don't even say it. I don't even say it. Uh, you know what I'm saying. And, you know, it's, it's like millions, you know, relatively speaking. So it means that this, the Jewish community in Spain was hit with a tremendous clop. Um... Uh, I said before, even the Rivosh and big rabbis found themselves stuck in this situation. He, like so many others, the second he was able to, ran away and obviously dropped that Christian business, one, two, three. Uh, you know, it's always debate. Uh, there was a tr tremendous uh, aftermath of the Holocaust in terms of families being destroyed. Imagine the people sold as slavery. You have a lot of Agona questions. I think I discussed this in the past when I did the Rivosh. So you can listen on that time, because this is when he lived. He used to be the biggest post in Spain. Now he ran over to Algeria, which is not that far away, across the Mediterranean. And that became where all this fardom are running to, and trying to rebuild the little that they have, having gone through terrible Corbin. The Rivosh himself, I remember, lost two kids to one of these mobs. Um, the famous Maisa Eifod, Profia Duran, was an important, uh, I would say, Talmud Moscow, whatever. He had to convert. He had to spend the rest of his life as a Christian, even though secretly he was writing books attacking Christianity, Klimas Agayim, and all the rest of it. It created a crazy Matthias, okay? And it led to situations where things just got more complicated between 1391 and 1491, until, as we all know, in 1492, they said that all the rest of the Jews have to just leave the country. Now, in 1492 was less violent than 1391. 1492, the king and the queen, Ferdinand and Isabella, simply said, like this, look, we're, we're, we're exercising our option. The Jews are here. We're not physically hurting anybody, but we're making a law. It's our country. We can say what we want. Any Jew who doesn't want to convert has to leave the country. That's called the expulsion of Jews in Spain. And at that time, another 100,000 whatever converted 50% of those who were left. And left a, a, a very complicated story that I want to go into now. I've already spoken long enough. Uh, but you see, the beginning of the of the, uh, of the the end started in Meshachodesh Thomas uh, this week. And uh, the, the saddest part is the Jews in Spain, I, mean, I, I don't want to be bad on them, they couldn't recognize that they're living on a volcano. You always are. Do we recognize we're living in a volcano? I don't know. 
Uh, a lot of things you see in the news is like a volcano about to burp. Now, it's not better in Israel, you know. Uh, but I'm just saying, uh, the study of history, at least make you sensitive, sort of more like a Geiger counter, you know what I mean? So sensitive to these sorts of things. And um, sometimes we're able to stop it. Sometimes we're not able to stop it. Uh, but I would say that um, a lot depends on the public mood. You can't let these anti-Semites and others control the public discourse. Because if they can convince the Jews are all bad, then relying on the police and, you know, the government is only going to be of limited uh, utility. Of course, at the end of the day, you hope for, uh, you know, for, for uh, Siata Deshmaya, but um, you have to do your shadowless, right? You have to do your shadowless. Uh, anyway, so that's an important event that takes place this week in uh, Jewish history. If you're interested, you can look it up. Just see, um, just Google uh, race, riots of 1391 or something like that, or in Hebrew, Xeris Kufnan Aleph. It's, it's a whole area I don't think most people are so familiar with. Uh, anyway, that's what I wanted to share with you. Uh, once again, I want to say I hope that this uh, talk we gave today will be as good for a foolish lamb for my good friend, Rabbi Moshe Zawalski. And with that, I bet you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.